Well, it's a delight to be with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to uh, join in with you all. I'm glad to team up with Gary Habermas. We've spoken at many conferences together, and so it's a great delight to be with you all. And uh, I'll be speaking on how atheists argue for God, and I assume that the PowerPoint is going to kick in at this time. There we go. All right, excellent. It's unusual to have a topic like this because, of course, atheists want to defend atheism, but I want to speak about how atheists actually make a case for the existence of God. Uh, I've used another title for this uh, talk, and it has been the atheists or the naturalists are declaring the glory of God. Uh, How do atheists actually support belief in God? So let's unpack that. We uh, have an hour to do that, so we want to uh, take, take some time to unpack what this uh, actually entails. So I'm going to quote a couple of atheists here for a little bit of encouragement, perhaps. Uh, Thomas Nagel, a noted professor of philosophy, uh, talks about how some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know, he says, are religious believers. Of course, this is in the midst of a confession that he does not want there to be a God. He doesn't want there to be a universe like that. But he candidly acknowledges that when it comes to intellectual competence, religious believers are, they do pretty well. Here's another one. Uh, Quentin Smith, another atheist, talks about how uh, the development of philosophy of religion in the 20th century, the latter part of the 20th century, uh, really surprised a lot of people. And he said, realist theists, those who believe in God, and that when we talk about God, we're talking about a real being, the, the creator of heaven and earth and so forth. They were not outmatched by naturalists, atheists, in terms of the most valued standards of analytic philosophy, conceptual precision, rigor of argumentation, technical erudition or scholarliness, and an in-depth defense of an original worldview. So here we have these confessions of those who are well-recognized atheist philosophers, but they also acknowledge that those who are engaged in Christian or theistic philosophy, more generally, are actually remarkably competent, very intelligent. So, That's a little bit of encouragement here, but that's not what I really want to talk about, seeing how atheists actually tell us how well theists do, theistic philosophers do in the academy. What I want to do is actually use the atheistic or naturalistic worldview and kind of turn it against the naturalist or the atheist, and then actually quote those who are naturalists or atheists themselves to show how they actually lend support to belief in God. So I hope this will be a very encouraging time for you all as you see that the Christian faith actually rests on very strong foundations when it comes to rational defensibility. So here's a bit of an overview. This is where we're going to be going. So I'm going to be speaking uh, in C's here. We'll talk about the creed of naturalism. We'll hear later on about the creeds of early Christianity. But we're going to talk now about the creed of naturalism, comparing that with theism or belief in God, and how this itself supports belief in God. Then we want to look at the contours or the landscape of naturalism, which also supports belief in God. And then we want to explore a bit further, looking at the claims of naturalists themselves, 
who reinforce belief in God, and then the conduct of naturalists. That is, how do they, how do they deal with their own worldview or philosophy of life when it comes to how they live it out day to day? And that they, we'll see that that actually strengthens or reinforces belief in God because they cannot live it out consistently. And then conversions. I want to talk about people who had been atheists and why they were drawn to belief in God and more specifically the Christian faith. So that's the basic layout of where we want to go in this afternoon's talk. So let's talk about creeds. The tenets or the specific beliefs of naturalism support belief in God. So we're going to have a, uh, we're going to talk about the implication, ten, the tenets of theism. We'll talk about the tenets of naturalism. So we're going to have something of a tenets match here, if you will. And then we want to look at two initial problems with naturalism. The first is that of incoherence. And secondly, the nature of its being counter, is being counterintuitive in nature. So that's our first section. So let's unpack that a little bit. What are the tenets of theism? Well, I thought being in Britain, I should have some sort of an acrostic that you might recognize, might stick with you here. So the BBC, a being of maximal greatness, a God who is worship worthy. Some people will say, well, what if there's a God out there who created the world and he's really evil. Well, that's not a worship-worthy being. We ought not to worship a God simply because that God created us, but maybe created us to torture us or something like that. Uh, that's not a being of maximal greatness. The second is that this is the bestower of the divine image. We all bear the image of God, that we have certain capabilities we have rationality, we have creativity, we have a deep relationality, we have spirituality, we can relate to this God who has made us in his image. And then finally, we have our C, that God is the creator of all reality outside of himself. Well, we've looked at the BBC, the tenets of theism, the uh, the being of maximal greatness, and of course the, uh, you know, the, the fact that we have been made in the image of God, and of course the, uh, the fact that God is the creator of all reality outside of himself, distinct from himself. What are the implications of theism? Well, the implications are that, one, the universe began to exist, the cosmos had a beginning, that it has not always existed, that it began a finite time ago, which sounds a lot like what people are talking about when they're dealing with Big Bang cosmology, the universe began to exist. Also, there's a design to the cosmos as well. The cosmos is design. So create the creation's beginning, the cosmos is design, that the universe is bio-friendly, that it is just right for human existence. And this is something that is widely acknowledged. There's also, uh, the thir thirdly, the creator's personhood, that the universe and also we ourselves as human beings have a personal source, that there is an intelligence behind the universe's orderliness, its predictability, its rationality. And we too have been made in the image of God to be thinking beings, to be truth-seeking beings, and of course to be beings who seek after God. And then finally, the creature's dignity, that human dignity, we talk about human rights. Where does that come from? 
if there is no God, it's hard to see how human rights could have any sort of teeth uh, in it, uh, any sort of foundation. Also, objective moral values. We have duties. We know that torturing babies for fun is wrong, that, we, uh, that, uh, that kindness is a virtue and not a vice. And so the, so the creation's beginning, the cosmos's design, the creator's personhood, and also the creature's dignity. These are the implications of the existence of God. Now let me talk about the tenets of naturalism. And I want to highlight three features of naturalism or atheism. Uh, you know, it's, it's basically a version of atheism. Uh, but naturalism is the idea that nature is all that there is. So when it comes to reality, when it comes to metaphysics, the naturalist says that matter is all the reality that exists. We can call this materialism. Next, we want to talk about, the, well, the second tenet is this, its view of causation, sometimes called etiology. All events are physically determined by prior physical causes going all the way back to the Big Bang. So we're talking about determinism here, that there is no genuine free will. We can't really talk about moral responsibility for our actions. Somebody like Richard Dawkins will say, our genes make us do it. We are just dancing to the music of our DNA. So that's their view of causation. And then thirdly, when it comes to epistemology or knowledge, knowledge comes about through science. And often they will be rigid and say, science alone gives us knowledge. Nothing more. If you can't prove it scientifically, you've probably heard that, prove it scientifically. Well, we'll see that there's a real problem with that viewpoint, that insistence that everything ought to be proven uh, by the means of science. So as we look through the, as we scan the, as we scan the, the, the world of the naturalist, those are three pivotal tenets. Again, materialism, determinism, and what we can call scientism, that only science can give us knowledge. So what are the implications then for naturalism? Well, there, there is no, obviously, supernatural, no God, no angels. There are no signs and wonders, what we would call miracles. There's no soul that exists, no soul that, could be, uh, that it could, it could exist after death, no survival after death. There's no, as we've seen, self-determination. There's no free will. I can only do what these prior physical forces are making me do, so I can't really help what I am doing. And there's fundamentally no significance to human beings. There's no intrinsic dignity and worth that human beings have. And we could add that there's no solution to the problem of evil. In fact, there can't be any evil at all because evil presupposes that things ought to be different than the way that they are. But you see, if nature is all there is, why think things ought to be any different than what they are? So what are some problems, initial problems with naturalism? Well, I mentioned that, first of all, there's, there's a problem of incoherence. When you really look at it, it doesn't hold together. For example, let's take a look at those three tenets of materialism, determinism, and scientism. The, the naturalist or the atheist is typically going to say, well, all that exists is matter. Well, how in the world can you actually prove that? How can you show that there is no God beyond the material world? How can you show that there isn't a soul that can 
survive bodily death and so forth. You're just not going to be able to do that given naturalism. It's inco that's an incoherent uh, belief. Determinism. Now, here is we, we come to a real problem. If people hold that all of our beliefs are basically pumped into us by forces beyond our control, then isn't that belief itself nothing more than the product of forces beyond a person's control? How many of you have heard of Richard Dawkins? This you know, world's leading atheist. Well, I had the opportunity to ask him a question when he was speaking in Florida. He was, uh, I was the first one up to the microphone. He was speaking at Nova Southeastern University, and I asked him this question. I said, if the naturalist or the atheist and the theist believe according to non-rational forces over which they have absolutely no control, how is it that you think that the naturalist is more rational than the believer in God? Neither can help believing what he believes. So it's not a credit to the, the naturalist that he's more rational because he can't help his beliefs any more than the theist can. A very interesting problem. We'll perhaps come back to that if we have time. So materialism is a problem. How can you prove that there is nothing beyond the material world? Determinism. If you believe that, you can't help believing it. How can you, you, know, you, you basically are just believing something that, is, that you're not responsible for. You're, no, you're not rational. That belief is produced by non-rational forces. And if you're right, it's just by accident, by, by luck. And then thirdly, scientism. How do we respond to this idea, you've got to be able to prove it scientifically? Well, just think about it for a minute. If you say you have to prove something by science, that science alone gives us knowledge. Well, the problem with that is, how can you scientifically prove that all knowledge must be scientifically provable? You simply can't. You see, that's not the product of scientific research and observation and so forth. That is simply the result of a philosophical assumption being articulated. So materialism, determinism, scientism, these are all fundamentally problematic. So there's the problem of incoherence. Secondly, there's the problem of being counterintuitive. Naturalism fundamentally denies what we take to be commonsensical, what we take for granted about us as human beings. So there are people, now some people might say, well, you know, I'm not that kind of, that kind of atheist. I'm not that kind of naturalist. I think that, there are, that human beings are more than just molecules in motion. That we are much more than the sum total of our uh, physical parts that are, that are moving about and, and uh, you know, these physical chemical processes and so forth. Well, that may be, I think that's very interesting if you say that there is this, you know, that we're much more than that, that we have dignity and worth, that we have free will and so forth. But the question then becomes, how do you actually support that if we have come from a series of mindless, valueless, deterministic, non-conscious, physical processes. How do you actually arrive at human beings with dignity and worth and free will and moral responsibility and having value and being conscious beings and so forth? That just doesn't square with that kind of background that you're talking about. So ultimately, it's going to we're going to have to go back to, I think, the, that more strict understanding of naturalism, that it just is not going to make sense. 
You're going to have to borrow from a view like theism or belief in God in order to support that. Here's here's an interesting quotation from John Searle, who's a philosopher at the University of California at Berkeley. He says, there is exactly one overriding question in contemporary philosophy. How do we fit in? How can we square this self-conception of ourselves as mindful, meaning-created, free, rational agents with a universe that consists entirely of mindless, meaningless, unfree, non-rational, brute physical particles. You see, I think the theist is in the driver's seat here. The theist has a context for affirming these things that many, even naturalists, take for granted about human beings. This is very interesting. Here's a, a very revealing quotation from John Searle. This is what, and I think this is the fundamental problem with naturalism. He says, physical events can only have physical explanations and consciousness is not physical. So consciousness plays no explanatory role whatsoever. If, for example, you think you ate because you're consciously hungry or got married because you're consciously in love with your prospective spouse or you withdrew your hand from the flame because you consciously felt a pain or you spoke up at a meeting because you consciously disagreed with the main speaker, get this. You are mistaken in every case. In each case, the effect was a physical event and therefore must have an entirely physical explanation. Well, you know what's interesting? John Searle's own statement is nothing more than the product of these non-rational physical processes over which he has no control. If he's right, it's just sheerly by accident. So we have to ask the question, why should we deny What seems so obvious to us that, for example, human beings have dignity and worth, that human beings are morally responsible for their actions. And we don't tell the the judge uh, in a court of law, your honor, my genes made me do it. I couldn't help it. No, we don't take that as a reasonable explanation. Our law courts, our penal systems, these presuppose that human beings are morally responsible for their actions. So it seems that those who deny what seems so obvious to humanity, that the burden of proof would be upon them. A further problem with naturalism at this very basic level is this. A lot of naturalists will say consciousness is just an illusion. There's no such thing as consciousness. It's just physical processes. And there is no you. There is no inner awareness. That's just an appearance but you don't really have this inner experience. Or they'll say that morality is just an illusion to get us to survive and reproduce. Or they will say that free will is just an illusion. Now, what's interesting about that is how do they know that it's an illusion? How do they know that everyone else is being tricked, but they are the ones who have the inside scoop? They're the ones who know better. The person who, one of the persons who discovered the makeup of the DNA, the double helix, uh, Francis Crick said this. He says that you, your joys, your sorrows, your sense of identity and free will, these are nothing more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. He says, yeah, that common sense idea that you've got free will, that you've got this sense of identity, that's just an illusion. He says, it's nothing more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. Well, so is Francis Crick's assertion that 
statement itself is nothing more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. Francis Crick is not more rational than anybody else because the same non-rational forces are at work producing that belief in him as they are producing beliefs in those who believe in God. If you're going to repudiate everything as an illusion, what's interesting is these atheists, these naturalists, are actually claiming, yeah, all these other people may be living under an illusion, but I'm not. I'm rising above all of those things and telling you that you all are living under this illusion. So those are some initial problems with naturalism. But let me move on now to talk about, you know, move from the creeds of naturalism and theism to talking about the contours or the landscape of naturalism. What does that look like? For one thing, how do we know even to prefer one worldview over another? By what criteria do we use, for example? And then we have to ask the question, as we've seen before, what's the context for believing in uh, you know, one view or another? Which actually matches up better? If we have a worldview that tells us that we're nothing more than the product of blind, deterministic, materialistic forces, and a worldview that talks about a supremely valuable being. When it comes to the criteria, what should we follow? When it comes to the, the context, what should we prefer? Well, when it comes to the criteria that we should follow, we should, we should obviously embrace something that has a more natural fit. So think of N, you know, the beginning, of the, the get to the nub of the issue here, the, 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 uh, you know, the more natural fit. So, for example, if something is quite jarring, if you have a context that, for example, begins with materialism, valuelessness, determinism, and then you end up somehow with free will, you end up with consciousness, you end up with value, it seems like it, there's something jarring here. It's not a very natural fit. So we have to ask the question, which worldview has a more natural fit given the context and the outcome or these specific features that we're talking about? Another criterion that we could talk about is unification. Which worldview does a better job of unifying things? For example, which worldview does a better job of accounting for the beginning of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe? the emergence of consciousness, the emergence of value, the emergence of free will, the emergence of beauty and so forth. A worldview that, that has nothing more than matter going for it or a creative, intelligent, supremely valuable being that is responsible for these things. So which brings it all together? Well, a personal creator would do a, do a much more adequate job of bringing all these things together than a naturalistic worldview. So there's First, there's the natural fit, there is the unification of a theory that keep, brings all of these disparate pieces together into a coherent whole. And then finally, we can talk about it being, you know, having a more basic or fundamental explanation than the competitor. So Bertrand Russell's reply to this question about how the universe is caused, he said, I should say that the universe is just there and that's all. Really? But the universe came into existence a finite time ago. Are you just going to say, well, let's not talk about anything beyond the fact that the universe is just there. I think a worldview that actually goes beyond that mere assertion and says, no, actually there is a cause to the universe. And of course, the Christian would argue that there is this self-existing being 
does not need a cause. He brought the universe into being a finite time ago. So then we ask the question, which context? And we've already touched on this, so I'm going to move uh, for, uh, a bit more expeditiously here through this, uh, through this portion. But we have to ask this question, which context? Naturalism or theism makes the best sense of these features and questions. So just do a quick comparison here. Self-consciousness exists. We've, have we come either from a supremely self-aware being, something like that, or are we the product of non-conscious material forces? Well, again, the context better suits theism than it does naturalism to account for the emergence of consciousness. Free will and moral responsibility. Does it make better sense to say that we are the products of these blind deterministic forces or a being who freely creates the universe, could choose not to create? So we have a basis for talking about free will, for talking about moral responsibility and so forth. Rationality. We trust our senses. Why should we trust our senses if we are simply the believing what has been pumped into our brains by forces over which we have no control? You see, if we're trusting our senses, it makes better sense. If we're in a theistic world that grounds that kind of trust and confidence that we are not being systematically deceived by our senses. And also, there are logical laws that we follow. We believe that there is bad thinking, that there is good thinking. C.S. Lewis said the reason that there should be good philosophy is that bad philosophy has to be answered. And we can say, we follow logical laws. There is good thinking, there's bad thinking, there's rationality, there's irrationality. And this is fundamentally grounded in a universe that has been created by God, a rational being who creates things in a, an orderly way that can be studied and appreciated and creates human beings to be thinking beings. We're called homo sapiens or thinking beings. So this, suit, this, this is much more suited than a universe in which non-rational material processes have somehow produced these rational thinking beings. The origin of the universe. The universe began to exist a finite time ago. Does it make sense to say that being came from being, as in theism, or that being came from non-being? Some people will say, oh, well, where did God come from then? Probably heard that response. Well, the theist doesn't say that everything has to have a cause. The, the believer in God says everything that begins to exist has a cause. Some people say, well, how can something be eternally there? How could it just be there? Well, unless you believe that something could just pop into existence uncaused out of nothing, you're going to have to believe that something was already there. Just think about that. Let that sink into our dark black hearts. This is, I think, fundamental, and a lot of people miss this more, uh, this, this very crucial point. The biofriendliness of the universe. The universe is beautifully engineered for life. Well, this makes wonderful sense if a wise, intelligent being exists, but if, if things just happen to be right cosmically, you know, that is surprising. If God exists, then this sort of an outcome is, is, is highly probable. But if God doesn't exist, this is wildly improbable. 
Doesn't mean that it can't be wrong, but, but again, uh, the theist is in a, in, a, in, a, in a better position here. What about human values? Humans have dignity and worth. We take that for granted, as we said, but does that make sense in a world in which we are simply the products of valueless matter? Or if we've been created in the image of a supremely valuable being? The existence of beauty. Beauty exists in the universe. We take, you know, even scientists will talk about beautiful or elegant equations, like uh, Maxwell's uh, equations for uh, you know, electromagnetism. Again, people see this as a beautiful sort of thing. Even scientists themselves will appeal to beauty, but why appeal to beauty as opposed to something that's inelegant or, or not so aesthetically pleasing? Why beauty? Well, that makes sense if there is this intelligent, creative being, but hard to account for if we're simply the products of these blind deterministic forces. Where does, well, how do we even account for beauty? You see, God makes excellent sense, consciousness, beauty, free will, personhood, rationality, duties, human value, and so forth. These make a lot more sense than if we are simply the products of a naturalistic world. Let me move to the claims. We've got the Beatles here who sang in Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album, I Get By With Little Help From My Friends. Well, we're going to quote some of our friends from the naturalistic community who actually helped to reinforce belief in God. And, and again, I'll move through this quickly. We've uh, lost a little bit of time here. But how do our naturalistic friends help to reinforce the explanatory power of theism or the existence of God? Again, the heavens are declaring the glory of God, Psalm 19 says, but actually the scientific naturalists are also helping to declare the glory of God in their assertions. So when it comes to the beginning of the universe, here's a statement by John Barrow and Joseph Silk. I'm going to be basically just be quoting naturalists here. This is remarkable. Our new picture of the universe is more akin to the traditional metaphysical picture of creation out of nothing. For it predicts a definite beginning to events in time. Indeed, a definite beginning to time itself. They ask, what preceded the event called the Big Bang? The answer to our question is simple. Nothing. Think of how startling that is. What kind of a leap they have to make to say that this grand, expansive universe simply came from nothing. Popped into existence. Bam, there you have it. First there's nothing, and then there's this remarkable universe. Again, the theist says, uh, I've, I've got something better here. William Rowe, uh, the late uh, philosopher uh, who's an atheist, uh, says it must be acknowledged that the emergence of the Big Bang theory of the origin of the universe has given new weight to an argument for the existence of some sort of a creator. Consciousness. Again, we can, I can, I've got a ton of quotations here. I'm just giving you a sampling here. But... Uh, Jeffrey Maddell, who says, the emergence of consciousness then is a mystery and one to which materialism signally fails to provide an answer. Again, that notion of no answer seems to be a repeated theme. David Papineau, Colin McGinn, remarkable quotation. How, did, how can mere matter originate consciousness? How did evolution convert the water of biological tissue into the wine of consciousness? Consciousness seems like a radical novelty in the universe not prefigured by the after effects of the Big Bang. So how did it contrive to spring into being from what preceded it? How could physical events blossom into conscious experience? This is a, a deep problem in the philosophy of mind. Again, not a problem for the theist, but a serious problem for the naturalist. 
free will and moral responsibility. We come back to Thomas Nagel again. He says, given naturalism, it's hard not to conclude that we're helpless and not responsible for our actions. But again, we, we just reject that in, in the very realities of everyday life. We do take responsibility for our actions. That's what parents teach their children. William Provine, free will is traditionally conceived simply does not exist. Did he freely articulate that? Or he, couldn't he help saying that? Well, of course, he doesn't want to be seen as someone who can't help saying that. He does believe in rationality and free will and so forth. Um, I'm going, it's interesting, Thomas Nagel, he says, those who deny consciousness, people like Daniel Dennett, says, you know, he says, I'm reminded of the Marx Brothers line, who are you going to believe? Should be whom, by the way. But who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? In other words, if you're going to deny consciousness, you're going to have to be conscious in order to do so. If you say it's an illusion, well, a conscious person is the one who experiences an illusion. So Thomas Nagel, this atheist, says, that's all goofed up. You've got to do better than that. It just is so patently obvious that we are conscious beings, and the burden of proof, which has not been shown, the burden of proof is on those who would deny this very fundamental basic fact. So here's rationality. Noam Chomsky talks about how belief, you know, that if we land on the truth, he says it's just largely a lucky accident um, that there seems to be this partial convergence with our belief and the, 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 the real world. Richard Rorty, he says that every Speech, thought, theory, poem, composition, and philosophy will turn out to be completely predictable in, in purely naturalistic terms. So we can basically predict what Richard Rorty will believe. He can't help believing what he does. At least couldn't help believe what he did. The prediction of every sound or inscription of which, of, uh, which will ever be uttered. Again, denying any sort of rationality. But no doubt he thinks that he's being rational in articulating this. What about objective moral values? Joel Marx, an atheist, says, I've given up on morality altogether. Why? Because he saw that it did not fit with an atheistic worldview. He used to be one of those optimistic moralists, but he realized, no, the people who say that God is the basis for morality, uh, you know, he says they're right. If there is morality, then God's got to be behind it. He says the religious fundamentalists are correct. Without God, there is no morality. Hence, I believe there is no morality because there is no God. Kai Nielsen, he says, we have not been able to show that reason requires the moral point of view. Reason doesn't decide here. Notice how depressed he is here. The picture I have painted for you is not a pleasant one. Reflection on it depresses me. He wishes there could be morality. He wishes that he could hold to objective moral values, but he says there's just no basis in naturalism to come to that conclusion. A good knowledge of the facts is not going to take you to morality. And we could go on and talk about others, but let's just pick a few other things when it comes to the fine-tuning of the universe and biological organisms. If the universe, which Stephen Hawking says, were altered just by modest amounts, the universe would be qualitatively different and in most cases unsuitable for the development of life. Just to tweak things a little bit, is going to throw, thing, throw life off. There will not be any possibility for life. The universe and its laws appear to have a design. That's the appearance. They appear to be designed, but they say they're really not designed. 
but they appear to have a design that both is tailor-made to support us and if we are to exist, leaves little room for alteration. Think about this. People who say, oh, the like Richard Dawkins will say this, the universe just appears to be designed, but it's just an illusion. Well, is that the conclusion of science? No, that's a philosophical assumption. If You see, if things appear to be designed, maybe they really are designed. Alvin Plantinga, who's a theist, I'm quoting a theist here, he says, the basic idea that such fine-tuning is not at all surprising or improbable on theism says God presumably would want there to be life, and indeed intelligent life with whom to communicate and share love. Given atheism, it is surprising, this complexity. Therefore, atheism is to, therefore theism is to be preferred to atheism. Because this fine-tuning is probable if God exists, but it's not if God doesn't. Interesting, you know, notice the language of design here when it comes to biological organisms. Richard Dawkins talks about the machine code of the genes is uncannily computer-like. Notice the design language there. Francis Crick, biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. Talks about the origin of life appearing at the moment to be almost a miracle. Well, maybe it was. Every living cell, even the simplest bacterium, teems with molecular contraptions that would be the envy of any nanotechnologist. Well, maybe there's a designer behind these things. Timothy Lenoir, interesting, talks about how this design language has been steadfastly resisted by modern biology, and yet in nearly every area of research, biologists are hard-pressed to find language that does not impute purposiveness, like computers and cameras and so forth, to living forms. Beauty in the universe, again, we've touched on that, so I'll, I'll uh, uh, move beyond that. Uh, Steven Weinberg, sometimes nature seems more beautiful than strictly, is strictly necessary. Even human uniqueness. People like Richard Dawkins says, we alone on earth can rebel against the tyranny of the selfish replicators. Interesting admission there. Or Daniel Dennett, love that beard. Uh, he says, we also have, he says, you know, like animals, we try to survive and reproduce, but we also have creeds and the ability to transcend our genetic imperatives. This fact makes us different. Wow. Sounds like the image of God, doesn't it? What about conduct? Naturalists are inconsistent when it comes to how they actually carry out the way that they live their lives. I'm going to uh, just quickly talk about David Hume, how he was so perplexed. He's a skeptic, Scottish skeptic, who is, was confounded by all these questions about his own identity and how he should live and so on. And what does he do? He basically goes to join his friends to, uh, you know, to just sit down and play a game of backgammon, have dinner with his friends and so forth, because he really can't come to terms with the deep problems of bringing his theory down to everyday life. So he, you know, when he goes back to those questions, he just finds that it's just kind of a cold question. He doesn't even want to pursue them further. Richard Dawkins, again, we talked about the, the, the design of the universe, but yet it's interesting that Richard Dawkins, even though there's no purpose to the universe, that we can be intellectually fulfilled atheists, he says. Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist, but doesn't that sound like it's a good thing? But where does value come from? Doesn't it sound like purpose, that we ought to be intellectually uh, you know, serious and that we ought to be intellectually fulfilled and so forth? But that's the language of design or purpose. Here's another quotation, and I'll, I'll just um, you know, finish up with this one in this section. As an academic scientist, I'm a passionate Darwinian. But when it comes to, uh, when it comes to politics and how to conduct our human affairs, I am a passionate anti-Darwinian. You see, his Darwin, Darwinism works just fine in the academy, 
But when it comes to everyday life, he has to switch gears and move away from that worldview because he can't bring those two together in everyday life. So he's got to switch out of that and into something that is really just borrowing from a theistic worldview. Let me just say something about conversions and then we'll wrap up. What, what, what insight do former naturalists uh, give to us? Those who had once been naturalists become theists. What brought them to belief in God? Well, C.S. Lewis, I think, put it beautifully. Uh, once an atheist, he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. In other words, it's not just that there are good reasons for God, but as you see the implications of God, the ripple effect of God, in all of life, God makes so much more sense than the rejection of God does. As an atheist, he struggled with the problem of evil. He says, my argument as God, that against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? In other words, if you're going to say that Things ought to be different. How can you say that if you're a naturalist, if things are just the product of material forces? Why ought things to be any different than the way that they are? C.S. Lewis reflected on this. He said, no, it's, if, if I'm saying that there's something that's evil, then I'm presupposing a kind of standard from which the evil is a deviation. And that makes better sense in a world in which God exists than in a world that God doesn't exist. Antony Flew who abandoned his atheism, and again, thanks to the influence uh, you know, and, and, and input of uh, people like Gary Habermas here, he embraced belief in God, and, and he said that this is supported by recent scientific discoveries. Well, what were those scientific discoveries that led him to change his mind? Well, the beginning of the universe, the Big Bang cosmology, the fine-tuning of the universe, the complexity of biological life, these things that we've been talking about here. G.K. Chesterton. Interestingly, he read all those atheists as an agnostic. He was reading the materialists, but he found that their worldview is so shrunken down, so narrow. And he said, there's got to be something more to it than this. You see, the, the modern scientific view, again, we're not saying anything against science. Science can be a, a wonderful way of discovering uh, you know, the way things operate in the natural world. But if that's all there is to your world, it's going to be shrunken down indeed, and you're going to lead to, it's going to lead to a stripping of humanity down to mere molecules in motion, removing the things that actually make the best sense of who we are, that give to us depth, that, that really speak to us in the depths of our being. So he wanted to, he said that the world needs to be re-enchanted. Science is, 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 is disenchanting the world, if that's all that you're living by. Louise Cowan, she read the classics. And she actually was moved by that. She said it wasn't an argument that did this. It was just reading Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, and others, and how they really raised issues that arguments, even science, simply could not. She said, I had, I, what was needed was a way of seeing. I had to be transformed by the way that literature transforms by story, image, symbol, before I could see the simple truths of the gospel. Above all else, this seems to be the chief value of what we call the classics. They summon us to belief in God. Here's an atheist. She's reading these classics, and this awakened in her belief in God. Even for things ordinarily considered certain, we moderns require proof. In this state of abstraction, we are cut off from the fullness of reality. Something has to reach into our hearts and impel us toward recognition. 
Think about how human beings wrestle with guilt, with shame, with significance and security and so forth. These are the sorts of things that science is just not going to address. And so she realized that if I'm going to stick with science, it's going to be inadequate to account for who I am as a human being. G.K. Chesterton, I love this quotation. He says, we have returned to belief in God, a number, he and a number of other intellectuals. We have returned because it is an intelligible picture of the world. Numbers of us have returned to this belief. We have returned to it not because of this argument or that argument, but because the theory, when it is adopted, works out everywhere, because the coat, when it is tried on, fits in every crease. We put on the theory like a magic hat, and history becomes translucent like a house of glass. Like what C.S. Lewis said, that not, not only because I see the sun, but by it, I see everything else. That's why the Christian faith is to be believed. Its ramifications are holistic, not just this or that argument. So again, why does God make more sense? The existence of consciousness, beauty, free will, personhood, rationality, duties, human dignity, moral values, guilt and shame and so forth included, are hardly surprising if a good, personal, rational, creative, powerful and wise God exists. But these sorts of phenomena are very startling if they're the products of deterministic, valueless, non-conscious, non-rational, materialistic processes.